If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke chapter 23. One of the things that I enjoy reading about or listening others talk about is history. And I think for me, one of the most fascinating things are those accounts by ordinary people that have found themselves unexpectedly caught up in events that would leave an indelible mark on history. Last year was the centennial anniversary of World War I. And one of the websites that I frequent had post after post after post all through the year walking through the timeline of 1914 about the tensions that led up to war and the ignition that brought it about. And one of the things that I thought about was the caravan that contained the future king, Archduke Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie. And I thought about what it must have been like for those ordinary shop owners, those ordinary people that sold bread or mended shoes or provided dresses for ladies who knew that their future king was coming through and so paused their lives, stepped out of their shop just for a glimpse of this king, only to hear gunshots ring out and within moments see Ferdinand and Sophie dead in the back of their car as the motorcade drove away in a panic. What must it have been like not simply to witness that assassination, but the war that would ravage across Europe, the war that was thought to end all wars, the great war that would follow, knowing that you were there at the flashpoint where it all began. Even within the Bible, we are given sometimes fleeting glances, little glimpses into the lives of ordinary people who encounter the extraordinary acts of Almighty God in history. Such is the case actually in the opening verses of our passage today from Luke chapter 23. As we've been moving through Luke's gospel, we have been seeing the events, the teaching, the miracles of Jesus' life. But remember, Luke is no mere historian. He is making the case for us, just as he did for his original reader, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that we should have confidence to put our faith in Him and be assured that we will be rescued from our sins and given fellowship with God. And today we come to the final hours of Jesus' life as the sentence of his Roman um, execution is about to be carried out and Jesus will be crucified. But it begins with an ordinary man caught up in these momentous events. Let's read about him as we begin in verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. We read that as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals 
one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's inerrant and inspired word. Listen to it this morning and believe. What must it have been like for Simon that day? We're told that he's from Cyrene, which is in North Africa, uh, where modern-day Libya is. And he's there uh, traveling to Jerusalem, most likely for the Passover celebration. There was uh, a celebration. There was a large group of a, a Jewish community in the area of Cyrene. And there he is, minding his own business, yet caught up in the final stages of Jesus' unjust trial and sentencing. Perhaps he knew of Jesus and wanted nothing to do with him, wanted no part in this Roman business. Though for perhaps from being far away, he had never even heard of Jesus, knew nothing about him and was clueless about what was going on. We cannot know for sure, but what we do know is that in the providence of God, Simon's life was changed forever. I mentioned providence because we read this passage, we need to see that Luke is not only walking us through the events that actually happened, these terrible events of Jesus' life, but he is showing how they took place according to the sure and certain word of God. This was the reason for which Jesus came into the world, to take up that cross and bear the sins of his people. But at the same time, Jesus continues to reveal his own righteous character in unexpected ways. In every scene we are given, Jesus does something that defies our expectations, that presents something surprising to us given what he is going through. Thus, all throughout this passage, we see these two things, both the expected fulfillment of God's promises as well as the surprising grace of the crucified king. It all begins with a powerful condemnation, a powerful condemnation. At this point, Jesus has already endured physical brutality and suffering that most, probably all of us, will never come close to experiencing. It began the previous night when he wrestled in prayer, agonizing over his impending death and the wrath of God that would be upon him for hours Most of us can barely handle 30 minutes. But for hours throughout the night, Jesus was wrestling before God in prayer until sweat like great drops of blood poured out from his body. When 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 they came to arrest him, he was already physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. But then he was arrested and put on trial by his own people, by the Jewish authorities. And since at his apparent blasphemy at the end of that trial, some spit on him, some slapped him, and some struck him in the face. 
From there he is taken to the Romans, and after being questioned by Pilate, he is peddled off to Herod, who dresses him up in, in fancy clothes and mocks him for the king he is supposed to be. Pilate gets him back and then releases him, but the, wants to release him, but the Jewish leaders demand Jesus' death. So Pilate's men beat and mock Jesus and flog him. They beat him across the back with a leather whip and bed it with rock and bone. They pull out tufts of his beard, strike him with a rod that is supposed to represent the scepter of his glory, and adorn him with purple and a crown of thorns, which they press into his brow. After all of this, then, he is sent out to be crucified. And so here we remember the word of Isaiah about his physical appearance. Given all that is happening, we're not surprised. Remember that God speaks of Jesus, his servant, saying that many would be astonished at him. Why? Because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Though probably not to the extent that it is shown somewhat unhistorically in certain films, Jesus nevertheless has taken a pounding by his own people and especially by the Romans. And therefore, as they led him away, he was unable to bear his own cross. Despite what you may see on the History Channel, Jesus actually was crucified on a cross that looks very similar to this, although much, much larger. And the cross beam at the top would have been the part of the cross that every convicted criminal was expected to carry up to the place of the actual crucifixion. Where after being nailed to it, he would be then affixed with rope to the main beam and then raised up for his punishment. But he's simply physically unable to carry that beam, which probably would have weighed around 100 pounds. Therefore, in verse 26, Luke tells us that the Romans seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, at this point... Even walking through, thinking about what we've just read, it would be very easy to focus in on that physical brutality, the violence that Jesus has endured. And again, as I alluded to earlier, that's often what drives most of the film portrayals that you see of this part of the Gospels. Most famously, we see this especially in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. In that film in particular, given his specific theological views in putting that movie together, we are supposed to feel, literally be swept up into and feel the physical pain of Jesus and his suffering as we move through the film. Because it is not so much just in the cross, but through the entirety of Jesus' suffering that Gibson believes that Atonement is secured, that salvation comes. So front and center through the entire thing is the physical sufferings of Jesus. That's why the flogging scene is so much longer, so much more the focus of that film, even than of the cross itself. And so very often as we read through this, we are tempted we are tempted to focus in on that physical suffering of Jesus, to put the emphasis there. But you notice that's not where the Gospels put the emphasis. Uh, did he suffer? Absolutely. It's historic detail. It tells us, but you'll notice that the Gospels don't linger there. They report what happened and move on. They're not interested in filling your mind with images of blood and of gore because that's not the point. The atoning, saving work of Jesus was not in the physical sufferings, but in the spiritual burden he bore on the cross under God's wrath. And so lest we get that wrong, 
Jesus himself corrects us. In fact, given everything that we do know that he's gone through, and he has gone through it, it is quite unexpected that Jesus pauses to give one final sermon before being crucified. Verse 27 says that as he's being led to his death, there followed with him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. This was not uncommon in the day. Public displays of grief uh, are even popular still today in that culture. Most likely they saw in Jesus one who was innocent and unjustly condemned. And yet, and yet, Jesus doesn't say, as we might think, I'll remember you in the kingdom because you're so sympathetic to me You're so worried about me. Just the opposite. He says, don't weep for me. Daughters of Jerusalem, verse 28, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why would would he say that? Because he knows what's coming. What he has predicted at least seven other times in the gospel of Luke, and that is the judgment of God is not just going to fall on him in a few hours, it will fall on all of Jerusalem. Why? Because they've rejected their king. They've rejected their savior. They've rejected their Christ. And therefore, they are to be pitied more than him. In AD 70, the judgment of God will be revealed through the sword of Rome and Israel will suffer terribly. He says, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then he quotes from the the prophet Hosea. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He says, such will be the severity of God's judgment, the the coming destruction that women will wish they'd never given birth, that they would not have to, 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 to be with their children through this event, that all of Israel, all of Jerusalem would wish that the mountains themselves would raise up and just crush them and kill them and put them out of their misery. And that's exactly what the ancient historians describe happening in great and horrific detail. And Jesus drives home the point point with a parable. Now think about this. How best do we start a fire and maintain it, maintain it even today? Is it with moist green wood or is it with old dry wood? Dry wood. Likewise, how much more, he says, will the judgment come upon those who are spiritually dead and dry, deserving of wrath because of their sin? If Jesus himself, living and righteous, is on his way to be judged. Verse 31, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? J.C. Ryle paraphrases Jesus' parable like this. If the Romans practice such cruelties on me, on Jesus, who is, who is a green tree and the very source of life, what will they do one day to your nation, which is like a barren, withered trunk, dead in trespasses and sins? Now, we're not Israel. 80, 70 is a long way off. What about us? Well, in some ways, the message is still the same. If we look at Jesus and only weep because of the pain that he endured, we've missed the point. The injustice of his suffering ought to remind us of the justice of God and rightly condemning us who are guilty for our sins. Jerusalem destruction was a temporal, physical judgment. What we face is far worse, an eternal spiritual judgment under God's hand. Thus, we ought to weep not for Christ, but for ourselves. And in weeping, we ought to cry out to God with repentant hearts for mercy that we might be saved from the wrath to come.
Such prayers aren't hopeless because God has provided salvation through a promised crucifixion. A promised crucifixion. That's the second thing that we see here. Jesus is not the only man crucified that day. Luke says that there were two other men who were criminals who were also led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, that is a, a, a certain hill that from a distance physically looked like a skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. You think about even today how, uh, how frustrating it would be if you, though completely innocent, were accused of a crime and put nevertheless into a criminal lineup that eyewitnesses might identify the guilty party. And they've pulled these guys. Perhaps you know you saw them do it. All of these guys have been in police custody already. They were in the holding tank at the jail. And they pull all these guys out, then they put you right in the middle of them, holding a number up, behind this mirror, having someone look, and you're just thinking, why am, in, why am I in the company of these men? I have nothing to do with this crime. I have been falsely accused. Now think how much more Jesus, not just suffering the indignity of crucifixion, wrongly accused, but alongside two other criminals who were guilty and did deserve this crime. And yet we're told that this was the promised plan of God from the very beginning. The prophet Isaiah foresaw that when he poured out his soul to death on the cross, he would be numbered with the transgressors, that he would be in the company of criminals. But that's not all. That's not all. Luke says that the Roman soldiers, in verse 34, cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching and the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. This was also the inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. This is part of the reason why we know that the, that the traditional version of the cross like this is what Jesus hung on. Because if it had been an X or a capital T shape, where would they have been able to hang the charge? Which was very common in Roman executions, to hang the charge of the offense, what they were guilty of above their head. Now remember, crucifixion was invented a few hundred years before this, but Rome made it popular. It was one of their favorite ways to execute criminals in such a way that it would deter others from the same thing. In addition to, and the reason why they love this, because in addition to just the, the pain of having your hands and your feet nailed to the cross, there was the humiliation of hanging naked and broken before all who would see you. Most of our artists display a sense of modesty before Christ, but he was not hanging there with a loincloth. All of his clothes would have been stripped, and that's what they're casting lots for at his feet. Additionally, through crucifixion, there was the agony of a slow death. Most people actually died from asphyxiation when they were crucified. Because being, be, being hung like this, the weight of the body would have hyperextended your chest and your lung, making it incredibly difficult for you to catch your breath. In fact, some would actually use the nail between their feet to push up and grab that bit of breath to sustain them much longer. And if the Romans got tired of that, if they wanted to just go home for the day, they would come by and shatter their kneecaps so that unable to hold themselves up, they would quickly suffocate on the cross. Now, despite the fact the Romans made crucifixion popular, the specifics of Jesus' crucifixion, his mocking and his derision that he endured, Though it came a thousand years later, 
David seemed to speak of the very thing in Psalm 22. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David meditates on his own anguish, and yet he describes it in a way that looks remarkably similar to a prophetic foreshadowing of what his greater son Jesus would go through. In Psalm 22, David says this, among many other things, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. For someone who's never seen crucifixion, who did not know what Jesus would go through, that sounds remarkably similar. How ought we to think about that? Namely this, what Luke has been showing us from the beginning, the cross is no accident, friends. That the death of Jesus was no unseen misfortune, just the opposite. This was the promised plan of God from before time began. This is the means by which he would save sinners to make them a people for his own namesake. God knows that even if those perpetrating this crime are clueless. It is a great irony that Jesus has been accused and mocked and derided for being a king. They've even put the charge above his head. This is the king of the Jews. When all the while, Jesus is the true king of the Jews. But rather than being killed, he should have been worshipped and adored and obeyed. And Luke wants us to see that though they are blind to it, these individuals are speaking better than they know. Yes, Jesus is God's chosen one. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he is the Christ. And no, he will not save himself because in not saving himself, he will save us. Imagine what they deserve at this moment. Imagine what these religious leaders, the supposed shepherds of Israel deserve, what the Roman soldiers deserve. They've refused God's word. They failed to see their king. And in sinful rebellion, they planned the death of God's own son. That's Israel. The Romans have just executed a, an innocent man. They've wrongfully put him to death. What did they deserve at that moment? It's not what they got. Some of you will remember the name Timothy Gagline. He was the special assistant to the President of the United States and the Deputy Director of the Office of Public Liaison. He served President George W. Bush for seven and a half years when an email showed up in his box that put it into everything. It was from a reporter asking him to verify whether or not he had been plagiarizing local columns he had been writing for a newspaper. Gagline knew immediately his world was about to end because, yes, he had been plagiarizing the columns that he was writing. And by his own account, when he read that email, he fell down beside his desk and he cried out to God in prayer. Oh, God. Oh, God. He wondered what would happen to his wife. He wondered what would happen to his children. But Gagline didn't hide the truth. He had been plagiarizing. He wrote back to the reporter. He confessed and then immediately typed his letter of resignation, handed it to the people that needed to see that, and he left the building for the weekend. He was done working for the White House. He went back on Monday, however, to clean out his desk, and waiting for him was Josh Bolton, the chief of staff for the President of the United States. Imagine what he deserved to hear from him. He feared public condemnation and humiliation, but instead, by Bolton, he was offered only forgiveness. 
Gagline said, I had kept trying to apologize, but Bolton just kept assuring him all was forgiven, that they were simply worried about his family. On his way out, Bolton told him, the boss wants to see you as well. He knew that meant the president himself. And so as he stepped into the Oval Office, Gagline was sure this is now where the reprimand's going to come from. The commander-in-chief, the one person who stood to be hurt the most by his sinful activity. Imagine what he deserved to hear. When the president saw him knock at the door, he invited him to come in and take a seat. And Eglin said that he sat on the couch that was farthest away, on the farthest cushion from the president. But Bush told him to sit closer, inviting him to take the seat of honor under the portrait of our first president, Washington. Gagline began to apologize, but Bush spoke over him, saying these words, quote, Timothy, I forgive you. I have done some things in my past for which I need and needed forgiveness. I grant my forgiveness to you freely. And Timothy, I want you to bring your wife and your children here so that I can tell you, I can tell them what a good job you've done for me and for your country over the last seven and a half years. Understandably, Gagline was in shock. Complete and utter shock. He could not believe the mercy and the kindness of President Bush, who kept his word, giving him and his family a personal tour of the White House, all the while looking to his wife and daughter, saying what a remarkable job Timothy had done serving his country and that administration. It's almost too good to be true. And yet what we see in our passage far exceeds any mercy and kindness that we find in that story. For in the midst of the injustice, in the midst of the violence, in the midst of the mocking and the hatred, Jesus does the unexpected. Jesus does the unthinkable. And from the cross, he calls out to God in prayer saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here we see the character of our King, who even in the face of open rebellion is patient with sinners. To be clear, this is not a a prayer of absolution. Jesus is not acting as a saving intermediary whereby the people that were responsible and guilty of crucifying Christ are somehow now given a free pass into heaven. No, this was a personal request. This was the man wrongly condemned and crucified looking to those who had done it and saying, Jesus, they or God, they don't understand what they're doing. Forgive them for this. And yet, that sense of willingness to forgive, that sense of mercy that Jesus extends from the cross to those who are guilty does point to the full and final forgiveness that Jesus is about to provide through his atoning death. More than that, even here we see a man's life who was changed forever. We've seen a powerful condemnation. We've seen the promised crucifixion. And lastly, we will see a pardoned criminal. A pardoned criminal. Two men were crucified alongside Jesus that day. Two criminals. They're called robbers in the other Gospels. And here's the interesting thing. In Matthew's account of the crucifixion, we're told at the beginning that as the crowd is mocking Jesus, the robbers, plural, the robbers, two, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. 
Both men, one on the left, one on the right, turning towards Jesus, hurling, mocking insults. But then in verse 39, Luke says, one of the criminals who were hanging railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now what happened? Some will look at this and say, ah, eh, the Gospels contradict one another, what do we expect? Is that the best we can do? No, not at all. Matthew, I think, is telling us what happened when Jesus was first crucified. I don't think that all those religious leaders, I don't think that all those Romans stood there and continued to mock for hours Jesus. I think that most of them got it out of their system and walked away feeling good about themselves. Matthew is telling us what happened when Jesus was first crucified with these men. They were both mocking him, but now Luke is showing us what happens later. And something has happened in between. Something has happened from what Matthew reports and from later what Luke reports. And I'll tell you what I think happened. Jesus' prayer. I think this criminal that defends him, start, but started off mocking him, thinks Jesus is just like every other messianic pretender that he saw. Perhaps, as some scholars believe, this criminal was part of Barabbas' gang. And as part of his, the wickedness in his own heart and what he has observed in others, he thinks that there is nothing to this Jesus, that he's just like one of them. But then Jesus begins to become, to, to, to become an object of derision. He begins to be insulted and mocked. And rather than reviling in return, Jesus keeps silent. Rather than yell and curse, he prays to God as Father. And he asks for pardon for his accusers. And I think suddenly, Jesus looks very different in the eyes of this criminal. Now when the fellow criminal begins railing, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself, save us. This man says, Stop it. Stop it. Can't you now see there's something fundamentally different between us and him? We're guilty. We deserve to be up here, but not this man. He is innocent. Unless we think this is some kind of fire insurance, I've got nothing left to lose, deathbed confession, listen closely to what the criminal says. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man is in nothing wrong. He sees and owns his own sin before God. He displays an attitude of repentance. We are getting what we deserve. We're guilty. But he also observes the innocence of Christ. We're guilty. He is not. He is righteous. And what does that lead him to but saving faith? Turning towards Jesus, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who has a kingdom? A king. A king has a kingdom. And so with, again, the eyes of faith, those that would mock Jesus, he can't possibly be a king. Who does he think he is? This criminal sees with great clarity, yes, Jesus is a king. He is the king. He is the Christ, the one sent by God who is innocent. And therefore, whenever it is, when all of this is done, when the end is coming, whenever it turns out and you establish your kingdom, Jesus, will you please just remember me? Will you remember me and forgive me? And here we see Jesus' final unexpected action comes in his comment back to him. Jesus says, truly I say to you, 
today. Not in the kingdom, not in the far future, not on some day of resurrection, but today you will be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait till the end. When our mortal bodies give way to death this day, you will be with me in paradise. That is what Jesus promises this man. Because Jesus is looking forward to the next three hours where he will bear the fullness of God's wrath against sin. And he assures this man because of his faith in him that he will be with him in paradise. He will be the recipient of the propitiation that's about to be offered to God the Father. In dying, Jesus will conquer death. And because of sheer grace, grace through faith alone, what more does this criminal have? He will know God and be with Jesus that day in paradise. Legan Duncan draws out the kindness of these words even for us today. He says, Do you realize that in one sentence, Jesus has altered the whole way the Christian looks at death? Death is the last enemy. It is the wages of sin. Even for those who believe in the gospel and salvation and the life to come, the loss of a loved one is hard and a hard thing to bear. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know that if you trust me, the minute, the second, the nanosecond you close your eyes in death, you will be with me. Not just then at the end of the age, but today you will be with me in paradise. Such is not just the power, but the glory of of Jesus our King. To be with Him is paradise, for He is the great treasure of His people. Heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there and we are with Him. So once more, we want to consider what it must have been like for Simon that day. We want to consider what was it like for him, minding his own business, yet caught up in this role of bearing the cross of Christ. We don't know for sure, but I think we're giving a pretty strong hint in Romans chapter 16. You see, Mark takes the time to record not only Simon's name, but also the names of his two sons. He says the Roman soldiers compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Then in Romans 16, Paul says this, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now think about this. If you've been in Jean's class, remember what you learned about Mark. It's written to the Christians in Rome. Why would Mark take the time to point out the children's names of this Simon if he was not already well known, if those sons were not already well known? And why would he have been well known to the Romans? Because Simon carried the cross of Jesus and through that experience came to see him as the Christ. Simon believed and so did his family, so much so that Simon's wife, the mother of Rufus, cared for Paul and supported his ministry as if Paul was one of her sons as well. Do we know all that for sure? No, but it seems incredibly likely. So now with that in mind, let's think again about what Simon was called to do that day. When he shouldered the weight of that cross, a physical symbol of guilt under Roman law, did he feel his own guilt? Did he feel the weight of his own sin before God? As he saw this condemned man struggle to the place of execution and heard him call out to the weeping daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves because the judgment of God is coming. Did Simon consider that to be the judgment that he himself deserved for his sins? Did he hang his head under the weight of the cross and weep not for Jesus, 
but for himself. And then as he marched up that awful hill, and the cross was suddenly taken from his shoulders that Jesus might be nailed upon it, did he feel the significance of that burden so removed? Did he come to understand what Jesus was about to bear? Not just the cross, not just its weight, but the weight of judgment against Simon's sin. Did he feel the alleviation of knowing someone else will be bearing that weight now? What about us? If not Simon, what about us? Have we in the past looked upon this man of sorrows, rejected and despised, by men and believe that it was in our place he stood condemned? That it was our sin that put him on the cross? Even today, do we look to him, this crucified king, as our king? As the king who died for his people, for us that we might belong to God? Do we honor him as king? Do we trust him as king? Do we treasure him as king? No one is more worthy of such love and devotion. Father, who do we have in heaven but you and the Son that you sent? Father, regardless of how long we've lived and what we've done, when it comes to salvation, we are no better than that criminal. We have nothing but faith in Christ to bring us to yourself. And for those of us that have, we rejoice. And yet, Father, we pray that we would live like servants of the King. That we would live as disciples of Christ. That we would not just speak his name, that we would honor him with our lives. Father, to those that perhaps sometime in the past have prayed some prayer, have made some decision, have filled out some card, maybe even passed through the waters of baptism. But Father, know deep down in their hearts, they're not trusting in your son for salvation. They care nothing of Jesus. He is not their king. Then I pray this morning that you will even now cause their minds and their hearts to look to this Jesus and see in him the Savior of the world, the Savior they need to be right with you. Father, humble all of us before the obedience of your Son. May we not only trust him, but may we rejoice in, may we treasure him, may we delight to follow and obey him all the days of our life.